Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Now, normally we're live right here on WNUR FM, Evanston, Chicago, but now that it's summer, our team is traveling all over the world. They're making opera, they're making art, they're probably making trouble, especially if you're Tobias. But look, not to worry, you're going to get your OBS fix. As I've said before, this summer most of our shows are pre-recorded, but they're still released at their usual time. It's Mondays at 9 p.m. Central here on WNUR and also as a podcast on iTunes. So over the next few months, you're going to get all your favorite segments, plus some new ones, as well as guest interviews, a couple of solo shows from me. Tonight is going to be a solo show and, of course, our team's hot takes on everything opera-related. Plus, you can still have your voice heard. Leave us a voicemail on 224 2189 box. That's 224 218 9269. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score or write to us via Facebook or at Opera Box Score at gmail.com. All right, so it's summer. That means reruns. And for our new listeners, you might have missed two great interviews from the OBS archives. Tonight, you're going to get another chance to hear Oliver's interview with Aria Nussbaum Cohen a countertenor who was one of the winners of this year's National Council auditions at the Metropolitan Opera. Plus, you're going to get my interview with contemporary American composer William Balcom. That was a total hoot to put together with him back in April. And you're going to get all your opera headlines and my hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. It's going to be a good show. Got a good feeling about this one. We had last week off for Independence Day. Hope you guys had a good time if you were in Chicago. Staying cool, barbecuing, maybe. Fireworks, of course. I'm amazed my kids did not blow off their fingers with fireworks. Oh, this is such a tough time of year. Nothing but baseball. Although, who knew the NBA had like an off-season season? I just saw that. Tobias probably knew about that. I was on ESPN was amazed that there was actually a box score from the Bulls playing. I didn't know there was an NBA off-season. Cubs are suffering. I think that is a fair thing to say right now. NL Central, five and a half games back from the Milwaukee Brewers. Panic setting in in Chicago. All I'm going to say is this. It is very difficult to repeat as champions in any sport. Maybe baseball is not the hardest sport to repeat in. It's probably football because... When you're playing in the playoffs, you just it's one and done. You don't have five game, seven game series. But Chicago fans, this is gonna hurt. Look, we had our chance 
It was great. Do not be disappointed if the Cubs don't make it to the World Series. Be disappointed if they don't make it to the playoffs. I, I think that would be a tough blow to win the World Series in 2016 and then not make the playoffs in 2017. That would be crushing. Watch this space. Hey, uh, thanks also, everybody, who um, shared the information on our last show about Lydia Yankovskaya taking over as the music director at Chicago Opera Theater. We've had some great feedback from our listeners on her. Super excited about that position. Lots of opinions flying around, and we are working on getting her on this show at the end of the summer, maybe early fall. I'm going to get her live in studio. That's my hope once we're back live on WNUR. Again, tonight just doing the pre-recorded podcast, but super excited to get her on the show very intelligent, very put together. She was very excited to to join the show, so we're looking forward to that. Hey, let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Thanks for joining us tonight. George Cedarquist doing the solo show here on WNUR. Well, pre-recording and then releasing it tonight on WNUR and tomorrow as a podcast. So when Oliver Camacho, our creative consultant, interviewed Arya Nussbaum-Cohen back in March of this year, he had just won the Metropolitan Opera National Council competition, one of the winners, and he was high as a kite, let me tell you. You could hear it in his voice, definitely. Since then, things have been going really well for them. Uh, He's done the studio artist track at Wolf Trap Opera in Vienna, Virginia. I imagine that was scheduled before he won the Met. Singing Giulio Cesare, singing the Juniper Tree by Philip Glass. And then coming up for him, maybe this was on the schedule as well, a production of Giulio Cesare in Houston in October. And then back to Houston for Strauss's Electra. In January of next year. And as you're going to hear in the interview, countertenors, of course, have won the Met before, pretty recently, in fact. But there was something about his performance that really clicked for him and was able to let him be chosen as one of the winners. Check out what Oliver and he talked about. Hi, everybody. I apologize in advance for the low-tech quality of this interview. I had the chance to meet Arya Nussbaum-Kohn just a couple weeks ago when he was uh, a featured artist with one of the local early music ensembles here in Chicago called the Newberry Consort. And I was really impressed with his singing. And I, of course, rushed backstage to try to meet him. And then just a few weeks later, he is in the Met Finals, and we were friends on Facebook at this point, and I was following the progress of this competition, and I wanted to seize the moment and uh, interview him, even with a low technical quality, uh, so that I can kind of have him tell us a story while it's still fresh in his mind of how this came to be. So the first question I pose to Aria um, is just backing it up and telling us about the competition and what it was like from the beginning. Yeah, so um, it starts out with the district round, um, which starts in the eastern region. Our district is in New York. 
And uh, that was back in October. I actually almost didn't enter the competition this year. I decided to enter about a week before with my teacher. We were debating. I didn't know if I was ready to enter. Um, but anyway, so I, I got the second to last slot in the eastern region of New York. And, um, yeah, entered and wasn't expecting to get through the first round, but um, got through the district round. And what's wonderful is you get a lot of feedback from the judges after each round. And they're all kind of big folks in the industry, so it's just wonderful to get their feedback and try to incorporate it as you go. So, And I was especially grateful, you know, after I won the district, that, okay, now I'm working towards the regionals. And so the district was in October. Regionals were in January. So I had those, you know, I'm trying to remember that you had those couple of months of, um, you know, now I had this really driving me forward of now I want to kick ass in the regionals. And, again, um, yeah, so then we had our Eastern Regionals in January, and I was, again, very surprised to get through. And um, that advanced me through to the national semifinals, which were 23 incredible singers. Uh, and that was on March 12th. Um, and I was at our first time singing on the Met stage, which was an incredible experience and really overwhelming emotionally. And, um, yeah, and then they named nine finalists, and I was, again, shocked to be one of them. And um, then I was so honored to be named one of the six winners this year. Let's back it up to the regional and uh, district, district rounds. What was some of the feedback you were getting from the adjudicators? Yeah, so there was a lot of, like, interpretive stuff um, with my arias and things, and especially with my past singing um, that, like, didn't come naturally to me, and it was only recently that it kind of dramatically clicked for me. Um, but I was glad to finally kind of crack that puzzle. Um, but, yeah, a lot of, like, interpretive stuff and things about just the way I approach my audition arias and making sure I present them in the most compelling way possible. And the best thing about the competition, too, was that once you advance to the finals, you spend a week just working with, these incredible coaches and folks at the Met um, help you get into the best possible shape. And I had another big breakthrough just in terms of how I dramatically approached things, working with the incredible director, Peter McClintock, who was working with us for the week. And it's just amazing the resources that they kind of give you to help you improve as you go along. It's just really wonderful. And especially feedback is something that I think is lacking a lot in the, like, upper industry. You know, like most auditions, you go in, you sing your seven minutes or whatever, and you either get your yes or no, but – I think if, if after every audition they give you just 30 seconds of feedback, it would just be so great in just helping everyone identify what they need to improve and everything. And I'm just I was grateful that the Met um, that that was built into this process because that's something I've experienced very rarely, just getting feedback. So many of us have seen the Met Council audition final movie called uh, The Audition, uh, which featured Michael Fabiano and. Kira Duffy and Amber Wagner, et cetera. Uh, was it anything like that? Yeah. So it like, was it like the audition? Yes and no. I mean, the, definitely the pressure was on and I'm, um, I'm a kind of like type A anal kind of person. So I like, mm-hmm. um, I took that as like, okay, this week I'm having all these coachings and lessons and working with the maestro and everything. And I wanted to do everything I could to incorporate all of the feedback I was getting. But even, like, beyond all of my singing practicing and whatnot, like, every night I would spend at least half an hour at the Opera House just running through my arias and just reading over my notes for my lessons and just kind of trying to incorporate everything. Um, so definitely pressure was on in that sense. What was wonderful was that in the documentary there are, like, a couple of the competitors who are kind of, you know, really viewing it as, like, a competition and really competitive. And mm-hmm. I was really glad, like, none of those finalists were – no one acted like that. Everyone was just really wonderful colleagues. And it was just great, honestly, just to get to know everyone and make some great friends through the process, too. So what was it like to sing on the stage of the Met? 
Yeah, so I've, I've been lucky enough to sing in a couple big houses, and everyone has said, like, oh, the Met is, like, the best acoustic of any big house. And you definitely feel that what's weird is that you don't get any – you don't get much feedback in terms of actually hearing yourself, but you have this sensation of knowing that the sound is being, like, shot out there by the acoustics of the hall. It's kind of what I would say. But so it still involves a lot of trust. And that's what I found singing at these big houses. Like, anytime you're singing in one of these halls, there's just so much trust involved because you're used to hearing yourself and, like, having a sense of control over what's going on. And you just have to trust that the sound's going out there and that it's not, you know, just dying. Because, you know, like, San Francisco Opera singing in that house, first time I was out there, it just it felt like my sound was just going nowhere, you know? So there's just a lot of... A lot of trust involved, I would say, but just overwhelming to think on the stage of the Met. I mean, incredible. Considering the semifinals, I went out there and sang, and it went pretty well. And as I walked off stage, just as I was walking kind of through the whole backstage area back to the dressing room, I just started crying. I was just overwhelmed by the experience of singing on that stage. It's just, oh, it's just incredible to think of, obviously, all the artists who have come, you know, who have sung there before you, but, you know, just the, it's like, you know, the mecca of opera. It's just it's yep. an incredible, incredible sight. So to have the opportunity, and especially with my hometown opera house, I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of operas there. So to finally have the chance to sing up there, it's just an incredible, overwhelming experience. So the semifinals took place on the stage of the Met, uh, but the finals were uh, the first time you got to sing on the stage with the orchestra. What was it like to be on that stage and to have the orchestra in the pit and to have the conductor in the pit? and to have that whole new arrangement. Yeah, so it's definitely, um, you know, you want to watch the conductor, but you also want to kind of pitch your sound up because you know it's a huge hall and you want the sound to go to the back of the hall. Um, mm-hmm. But definitely felt supported by the orchestra, and the orchestra musicians were so wonderful just in our, like, zips and rehearsals with them. And um, it's clear they, like, it's clear they really enjoy kind of being part of that competition process and, you know, seeing the young singers who were obviously all so excited as each thing is happening as opposed to maybe some of the jaded uh old stars or whatever. Um, yeah, and it was also, we were so lucky, the maestro who was conducting this year for the finals was Nicola Luizotti, who was the head over of music over at San Francisco Opera, who was just like the sweetest guy, in addition to obviously an incredible musician, and it was just wonderful to work with him and get to know him, and he's a real singer's conductor, and so you felt really supported that you could just kind of do your thing, and he would follow you, and of course you're watching him, but it was a beautiful symbiosis to work with him. So we know from the New York Times article that you sang uh, Handel aria, uh, Dovese, and you also sang uh, the aria from Flight. Um, how did that? How did you choose your repertoire, and uh, how did you know what you were going to sing? So well, in the semifinals, I sang the Flight first, and then they asked for Venti Turbini from Ronaldo, my fast Handel, mm-hmm. and then in the finals, uh, it's all kind of picked in advance. You pick the arias in tandem with the Focus of Sabet, and um, I got to think that. From Handel's Rotolinda, and then the Refugees are a Dawn Still Darkness from Jonathan Dubb's Flight, which at first they weren't sure if they were going to be able to make it possible for me to sing the Flight aria because that's something they have in their library, obviously, and they had to ship in the parts, but um, I felt pretty strongly that I wanted to sing that, and they were able to make it happen, which I was really grateful for. Thank you. 
So we know how the story ends. Um, you are announced as one of the winners, one of the six winners. But then the next day, something even more crazy happens. Uh, Zachary Wolf, the one of the music critics of the New York Times, writes this incredible article, uh, which they always do. They always review uh, this concert slash competition. But uh, kind of the way he described your performance uh, puts you in a league of your own. And, you know, he's like drawing comparisons like Jamie Barton and whatnot. Um, how, what was it like to read that? It was truly crazy. I also I read Zachary Wolf's criticism, and I read the Times every day. And um, so I knew I've ne- I had never been reviewed in the Times before. I'd never gotten a mention in the Times. I've been singing numerous things in New York, and um, I've sung in things before that the Times usually reviews. And it's always been like, oh, they didn't ha- they happened to not send a critic that time. Like I mean, two months ago, I sang in the finals of the George London competition. They always review it every year, and this year they didn't. So I've never gotten a mention in the Times. I knew I knew that. Um, you know, there was going to be a review coming out for the finals. So, you know, I was kind of very alert to that. And I set a Google alert for my name just so I could see it, you know, as soon as it came out. And I and I just, I started crying. I was like, what? Craziest, truly the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. Honestly, like, winning was so incredible. But, that our, I mean, it was just beyond. It was crazy. It was wild. Um, so, yeah, I just started crying. And I, I called my parents and, like, was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, and read it to them. And, really beyond my wildest dreams to get that kind of review. It was crazy. And, you know, the one thing I felt kind of weird about was, you know, all the finalists were so talented, all the winners. I mean, everyone was so good, and they were all became such dear friends. And I, like, still cannot believe that he felt I was worthy of those words. I mean, it's just crazy. So in light of your win and that amazing article that Zachary Wolf put in the New York Times, uh, what are some of the opportunities that have been presented to you at this point? Yeah, so it's been incredible. There's, like, not that much I can say publicly, but, but um, I already had been, like, engaged for the next couple of years with young artist residency kind of things, but now there are other wonderful engagements coming up, and um, I'm also now at a stage where I'm looking at management and meeting with various folks and deciding what the best path is for me in that regard of, you know, who I want to be represented by, and that's a wild thing that I, you know, beyond my wildest dreams could have never thought would be happening now. Um, but it's just been incredible that obviously on my, my website got 20,000 hits in a couple of days after that. I mean, it's crazy. Just the, the, It's really opened up a whole world of possibility for me, which I'm just so grateful for. So the things I can disclose. So um, this summer I'll be at Wolf Trap Opera as a studio artist working on a production of a Philip Glass and Robert Warren opera called The Juniper Tree. I'm thinking in scenes from Giulio Cesare and Oscar, that new opera from a couple of years ago. So that'll be fun. And then in late August, I head down to Houston to be the first countertenor in the history of the Houston Grand Opera Studio. Nice. Just a great, great honor. And I'm so excited to spend a season down there learning from the incredible resources and yeah, just the folks at that company. It's going to be, I know it's going to be a very enriching nine months. Um, yeah. And what else is publicly announced? I'm also, I'm going to be singing Messiah with American Bach soloists in San Francisco for their 20th anniversary Performances on the Fine Grace Cathedral out in San Fran, uh, and that's in December of this year. Um, yeah, and then there's lots of other little things popping up here and there for over this next season and that will be publicly announced soon, but yeah, everything will be on my website, arhinofstumcohen.com. So you'll be in the young artist circuit for a couple of years, but uh, after you feel like you've done all of that and you've completed that type of finishing school, what are some of your dream roles? What type of music do you want to sing, and where do you want to sing it? 
Yeah, totally. So, I mean, there's got two aspects of, like, the roles that I really want to sing. I mean, my dream is to sing the, the big handle heroes. Um, I, mean, I really want to sing Julio Cesare and Betarido and all these incredible um, characters whose music is just so glorious. And I'm excited. I'm going to be doing, like, a cover slash study role of the, the title role in Cesare in Houston in the fall, which I'm really excited so I can get my hands dirty with some of that. Yeah, but I really want to dig into those handle heroes, and then I really want to make a name for myself also in new music, in, like, you know, Flight by Jonathan Dove is an opera, like, dying to do the musical sensibilities of of some of this contemporary music, and I think the, especially, like, the relevance of, of that opera, I mean, it's just uncanny. Um, so I really want to kind of sing those roles. Yeah, I just really want to dig into that repertoire as well. As far as where, I mean... I'll be happy to sing anywhere, but I mean, I, I wanted to do some, some work in Europe, hopefully, eventually, and I would love to also, obviously, work here in the States, and yeah, but like, I'll be happy with whatever. As long as I can just sing some of this glorious music with wonderful colleagues, I'll just be so happy. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at 5 to give dad his medicine. At 6, I make his breakfast. At 7, I shower. Every day I wake up at 5. For those caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org slash caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man, Camacho. Oh, smooth beats. George Cedarquist here on Opera Box Score WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Hey, thanks for joining us tonight. Recording this show in advance, but it's still going out. Usual time, Monday night. Always a good night to talk some opera. I hope you guys are having a good summer out there in listener land. You know, back in April, I was directing a production of Lucrezia by William Balcom. He lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's been on the faculty at the University of Michigan for many years, and it's my hometown as well. And uh, over Easter, I went back home. Turns out, Balkan lives maybe 15 minutes from my parents' place, and emailed him, set up an interview to talk about Lucrezia, talk about his career, talk about his opinions on music, composition, education. He had really made his name writing art songs and theatrical songs back in the day. And I think that's really, in my opinion, why he's become probably America's most important art song composer. Some would want to beg to differ on that. But of course, he's written operas as well. Lucrezia with the libretto by Mark Campbell. Uh, And then a trilogy at Lyric Opera of Chicago, McTeague, A View from the Bridge, and A Wedding. We talked about all of that and more when we sat down last April, check it out. Here we are in beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan, yeah. mm-hmm. my hometown. And I, I want to know how you got to Ann Arbor in the first place. Oh, okay. Uh, 
I had a very good friend named William Albright, who was an organist and a pianist and a, uh, and a composer mostly. I met him at Tanglewood in 1966. We became great friends. I drove by this way on 67 because I was driving from New York, where I was living, all the way to uh, where I was La Jolla in, you know, in the south of uh, San Diego. Anyway, I um, stopped by and I saw Bill, and uh, I looked at the town. I found a very charming place. I was taken by him to the, uh, there was a band rehearsal. First time I ever saw girl hornets for lovely young women are playing the horn. I've never seen it anywhere before. And I began to see there's an awfully good number of musicians here, and it's a very culturally aware town. And uh hour and a quarter away from New York by, by plane. So, uh, well, to make a long story short, they offered me a job in 1973. I came here because <clears throat> I really wanted to have more time to compose because it was tough in New York. I had quit teaching at the uni at the city university at various places. I wanted to hit the street, which I found very instructive. It taught me a lot about real music and real life. But I came here in 1973 with all that street experience, which is, I think, one of the reasons I was, uh, I was attractive to the composers because I was dealing with real life a lot. So uh, that's how I ended up here, and they have been very uh, liberal with me. I retired in 2008, but I had to take off a whole lot of time for my operas, for example, and also when my Songs of Innocence was first done in Stuttgart, I had to be there, so I had to be there for gone for weeks at a time. <clears throat> but then I realized I was sort of their man in Havana. I was everywhere, and, and uh, so I've been very well treated, as was Joan, because we had a very heavy touring career for many years. So uh, that's why I'm here. 35 years on the faculty at yes. Michigan teaching composition. Right. Uh, how, did, how did you keep yourself going? I mean, 35 years sounds like a very long time to be at one institution. Well, it was a good place to be. Still is a very good place. I would recommend it because one of the things it has for composers particularly is access to performance. And teachers of the instruments and the voice who are very much for new music and will help put things together. There's a very friendly environment in that kind of way. So mm -hmm. I felt that was very good, and I felt very happy about the fact it was a non-doctrinaire kind of place. Though there were many places where the, which had a very strong musical ideology that if you were not in conformance to it, you really couldn't teach there. Nor were there a lot of places which were open to any number of things, which I felt was here was a very open kind of thing, and very oriented toward performance, which is very important for composers. Many of them get into situations where it gets too, too theoretical. Here, you were hands-on. I even got to teach a composition class for non-composition majors, which was <laughs> lots of fun. I found out there was a very strong amateur music culture here. People grew up out of family string quartets and things like that. There still is something of that, and uh, which is an ideal environment for uh, any number of things. <laughs> so I was very happy here, and uh, I found it to be a cultural happy situation. And as, uh, for many years, we had a pied-à-terre until a couple of years ago in New York, so we were back and forth all the time. When I listen to your music, there's this real seamlessness between popular music and classical music. I uh, feel like that's been something that has really defined your career. Well, if, that, if that's right, why has that been of interest to you? What, what is the relationship between those two genres? Well, I'm just restoring the old uh, situation in which those two things were more or less indissoluble. They even were in the beginning of the 20th century here, if you realize how much was uh, harmonically and otherwise evolved and interesting through the great song composers of that period. People like Jerome Kern were fully trained, 
Uh, George Gershwin became really an extremely solid composer. In fact, one of the things I'm very happy about is that here there will be a critical edition of George Gershwin's music at the mm. University of Michigan, mm. which will take 20, 30 years to put together, but it's wonderful it's here. We have Gershwin's own last piano, which is nice, but that wasn't important so much in the same way as knowing that everything that will be here under the good stewardship of Mark Clegg will we'll be sure that we end up with a... Finally, uh, uh, an addition that takes account of uh, Gershwin, he was not uh, uh, an amateur, he learned an awful lot. He was actually, by the time he was gone, he was a very finished composer and a lot of very interesting details about him. He was always quite interesting. And the thing is, that was what was the old collection between popular music and serious music, which were not that separated. They became separated in our time because of economics, because you can make money more with one than you can with the other, and so on and so forth. So now we have this idea of this is popular music and it's over here is classical music near the twain shall ever meet. So all I've done is all I've done is restore the old mm. balance. To look at a trio of your operas, McTeague, A View from the Bridge, and A Wedding, these were all done in collaboration with Arnold Weinstein, right. your librettist. What was it about that collaboration that was so fruitful and so productive? I was a beneficiary of a long relationship with the composer Darius Mio. And uh, one day Mio had gone to see his son, Daniel, who is one of my very close friends. I have several of his drawings and paintings and two sculptures in the back. Daniel just died in 2014. He was actually here in Ann Arbor hmm. because of the fact that I was able to get the university to put on a 100th year anniversary performance of Mio's Oristea, the Aeschylus Oristea in French from Paul Claudel, which was done here with huge forces and is now out on Naxos. So I got Danielle to come here, because always we would stay with them when we were in Paris, and uh, he was able to be here to witness the the uh, performance and recording of, of the Oristea, which is now out there. and It's one of the great works of Mio, and I was very glad to be able to do that. Anyway, uh, what had happened was um, Danielle... Uh, was living in Florence with, uh, he was actually studying with the great painter Oscar Kokoschka. Arnold Weinstein was a Fulbright in Florence. At the same time, they became very good friends. Arnold wrote uh, a libretto, which he called A Comedy of Horrors. And uh, when Darius Mio went to see his son, Danielle, Arnold gave him that libretto. He brought it back to Paris with him. He had read it, he liked it a lot, but it was too American for him. So since I was in his class at the conservatory, I'd been with him in, at uh, Aspen before and also at Mills College in California. And so he said, stay after class. And he gave me the libretto. And I said, I really liked, liked it. And so we wrote to him and got permission from Arnold to have me set it. Well, what came out of that is a enormous number of things. Um, I had to leave to go to America in the middle of my studies in 1961 at the conservatory because the draft had come. And I got back to New York and uh, waiting for the moment that I'd have to go to Fort Dix, which is no longer open at that time. I had to do that. Then I got this mysterious call from Stanford. We will offer you a doctorate and a deferment. And I know pretty much that it was... Mio had a hand in that because one of his students taught at Stanford, got me the deferment and the doctorate. In the meantime, I started working on a comedy of horrors, which then became renamed as Dynamite Tonight, and it was clear it was an opera that involved actors. 
not singers, because I had had some rather disappointing time trying to do vocal repetiture work with singers. In those years, singers were pretty much never talking about with their teachers what they were singing about. Diction rather than understanding of the text. Uh, and things like suppressing the vowels, I was, I was suppressing the consonants when you got upper notes and things like that. I was so disgusted by that, and I just couldn't teach that way that I began to get more and more interested in actors. Yeah. And I found a number of actors who were musically literate, or even who were very good listeners who were able to, as Arnold said, hang the notes on the words. Yeah. And we ended up with an actor's opera. We had three of them, actually. Theater opera, we through cabaret opera, we couldn't find the right name for it. But, you know, people sang everything, and they might have a difficult line, but if a line was viable theatrically, they learned it. They didn't know it was difficult. They just did it. And so I was so happy with working with these actors. I never thought I would ever write an opera for opera singers. Well, 1986, I was asked to the NEA for the opera musical theater. Because um, what I was doing was more musical theater than, than, than opera house opera. And uh, I was there on the panels and all the rest. There was this amazing woman named Artis Cranick, you might have heard of since you're an old Chicagoan. And uh, I was just absolutely so impressed by her. Well, she seemed to like me too. So at, as it turned out, in 1986 was the year also that uh, I was doing the, uh, actually, it was the songs businesses that I've experienced were done in Grant Park. Twice, as a matter of fact, that summer. And I don't know whether it was 85 or 86, I first met Artis, but she was there with uh, Bruno Bartoletti, who was a musical director there at that time. Mm -hmm. They then asked me, would I like to do an opera for Lyric Opera Chicago? And then finally they said, I'd like to have you do four operas. So we only I got to do three, because Arnold, just to make a long story short, Arnold died before the, the fourth opera was possible. Mm -hmm. So we did three operas there. Um, and uh, at that time, I've already noticed the difference between the 1960s that all of a sudden there were more and more singers who were paying attention to what they were singing about mm -hmm. and began to look at the acting possibilities in there. And uh, sometimes they have still not. They tend to sometimes insert the acting on sort of like an injection, but you find other ones who really internalize the text, and therefore, since they understand it, you can. Mm -hmm. And they, I, the idea has always been to try to get people to stop looking at the damn surtitles, but, you know, they still have that problem. It's just too, you know, and, you know. Sure. But, but that's one of those things that you have to fight a bit. But anyways, I've tried to set so that you could get every word and that the text was actually clarified by the setting, which has been my whole idea over the years. And now I have theatrically viable operas. At least I hope they are, and that's what I've tried to do. Well, Lucrezia, which is being done by Chicago Fringe Opera in May, is certainly theatrically viable. Uh, that's with librettist Mark Campbell, yes. who wrote Silent Night, and of yeah. course also collaborated with you on Dinner at Eight. Which is we just did in, in March. At, exactly. Uh, Minnesota. What's that collaboration been like with Mark Campbell? He's a very practical, solid, professional librettist with a poetic instinct. Arnold was a poet who had a theatrical instinct but was not as librettist-oriented as a librettist. So actually I had much more of a hand in the librettos when I was dealing with Arnold because he was one of those people who tended to take the Brechtian principle of using everybody as a collaborator. Hmm. Not always correct, not always crediting and them, as we know is, it was true with Brecht. But, but with Arnold, uh, he sort of took everything in and... We worked on everything. Uh, he gave me verb, uh, song and uh, musical ideas. I gave him verbal ideas. Uh, Joan Morris, for whom we wrote the cabaret songs, had a very strong collaborative hand in it. That's just the way Arnold was. With Mark, uh, we do collaborate, he and I, but he was really much more of a 
professional in the comes to the business of putting together a libretto as such. He's obviously the go-to guy. He's done 15 operas and working on, you know, all the time. Uh, mine was just one of nine in that year he was putting together. <laughs> so, I mean, this is a very busy man, a very different kind of cat. Composer William Balcom on Opera Box Score. What do you enjoy most about Lucrezia when you listen to it again or when you see it or mm. when, you, when you read the libretto again? What is it that you find attractive about the piece? Well, uh, it seemed like it was a very practical idea. I think we should really mention it was one of two. There was another, and still is done often in tandem with it, well, one called Bastianello, which Mark took from a Boccaccio short story. Lucrezia is taken and completely transformed from a play by Machiavelli. Now, Lucrezia in history was the wife of Tarquin, and of course she was um, an early king before the the uh, Senate started happening in Rome. And um, she was, she had to, uh, well, she dies at the end. I forget whether she commits suicide or some terrible thing happened. It's, this is the same Lucrezia as Benjamin Britten would write about. Exactly, in the rape of Lucrezia, right. She was raped and died. Um, well, anyway, Mark had the idea of, no, let's make Lucrezia the winner in this one. And she's going to be able to call the shots completely. And he has this wonderfully absurd, great idea. And I said, you know what? I would like to do a Zarzuela. Mm. I've always loved that form. This is this, this is the short uh, Spanish-Mexican kind of thing. In fact, that's the very culture that Placido Domingo came from. His parents were Zarzuela. Uh, they had a company of Zarzuela, I think, in Mexico City. So it's a very traditional little half-hour type of uh, kind of short story for a chance for people to do great little songs. And you have very much the same kind of plot. Curiously, very similar to the Yiddish opera, which is about half an hour also. Sure. And the story is always uh, a girl falls in love with somebody and her father says no and the end father relents. That's the whole story. <laughs> Meantime, they can have some sad operas, uh, arias, and, and they can do something. But it's generally a show kind of thing and there's a certain kind of lightness about it. Probably the great star in Zarzuela was a lady named Conchita Suferia. And if you can find some recordings of her, she was phenomenal. Hmm. Anyway, so it, let's make it into an Argentina soap opera. Um, uh, 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 we'll, we'll make it to Zarzuela. So it's only Zarzuela ever in England, <laughs> ever in English. So that, that was kind of the whole thing. So it's all with, you know, people with Chucho and names like that, which are essentially, you know, uh, Hispanic. And so the fun was to try to take that idea. Meantime, Lucrezia... It, well, what happens is she sees this young man. She's from a balcony. She throws a rose down, and then he has to figure out how he's going to get to her. And she is married to this old codger who uh, is, she needs some fun. <laughs> and so the whole idea is how to be able to bring fun along into her life. And so she goes to these most martial and and, and uh, this young man who picks up the thing. Uh, he goes through some wonderfully outrageous uh, changes with the help of this fellow named Chucho who works out all these marvelous mad things that he has to put himself through to be able to have a night with, with her. All that's just for that. Hmm. Hmm. And uh, also, Chucho has asked for money for one of these stages from all these different kind of people. He has put together quite a little handsome amount of money. And at the end, Lucrezia ends up getting it all. So she wins instead of becoming you know, uh, dead as she was in the yeah. Rape of Lucrece. Yeah. Yeah. The music is contagious for the show. The plot is outrageous and totally fun to follow. Even in looking at the score, a lot of the tempo markings 
seem to have jokes in them. There's one part in the score uh, where it's written James Brown in memoriam on the oh, way to the place. That famous little licky always that. Exactly. I did a terrible thing. I should know. I keep making jokes, but they're more for the benefit of the performers. I, you know, um, I did one for my octet, which we did uh, about two, three weeks ago. And there's one place I said, uh, um, free bows here. Uh, and then I said, other bows afterwards. And so like, that's something like that. That was just a joke for them. <laughs> and I put little musical jokes into my music all the time. It's terrible. I have an awful, I have a mania to do things. Okay. I don't know why. <laughs> when you look at the way opera is changing in America, um, what, what do you see in the future for this art form in this country? What, what does it need that it doesn't have right now? It's getting what it wants, which is to say performers who are viably theatrically and musically. And this is a, brings, a, brings about a kind of American opera which will be much more involved with the theatrical part than traditional opera. It used to not be verbally oriented at all before the First World War if you went to the Met. If they're doing a performance of Don Giovanni, the Don would sing it in Russian, and uh, Don Javier might do it in German. Uh, you know, the commendatory could be maybe uh, Italian. And everybody sang in their own, hang uh, their own language doing a production of the Met. It was done all the time, which goes to show you how un unimportant the language was. And you're supposed to know the story and all the rest of it. Well, that has changed. Now, of course, the thing for American opera, we need something that is much more theatrically viable and which should be also using the the wonderful tradition of the great musical theater worlds of the early part of the 20th century. And I think to me, the great uh, paradigm for opera in America it was Kirshen, Sporgy, and Best, which is, again, also an amalgam of theatrical and operatic elements. They allowed the highest kind of complexity when needed, and also the simplicity when that's also needed, which is what the old operas we always loved had. You have a very interesting, complicated opera, but meantime, out comes La Donna Immobile, everybody knows it, and Verdi is such a master at that. And even many of the Wagner operas had tunes that everybody knew, like Abenstern from Lohengrin. It's funny, you don't hear those things anymore. We talk about The Ring now, or Tristan. But uh, the other operas had hit tunes, and there was all this sense of something that was immediately accessible, but also with a deeper resonance that you can have in opera that may not be so easy in theater or in, in, in um, straight opera. So this is what makes it quite interesting to me right now. And I see that there are more and more performers who were able to do this. And that was the number one element that you had to have. But without that, you couldn't do it. So I think in a way it's oriented toward what everybody seems to want to have. So I think it seems to be evolving in that direction. I've, I certainly made an awful lot of effort to bring about that kind of an amalgam. But I see it's happening all over the place. Composer William Balcom on Opera Box Score. Mr. Balcom, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Wake up at five to give dad his medicine. Every day I wake up at five to give dad his medicine. At six, I make his breakfast. Every day I wake up at five to give dad his medicine. At six, I make his breakfast. At seven, I shower. Every day I wake up For at those five. caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community to help us better care for ourselves and the ones we love. 
visit aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from opera land in the past week. Delivered in two minutes tops. Staff and contractors at Vancouver Opera have been asked to take a 2% pay cut. Staff are told of the proposed measure last month. The Toronto Globe and Mail newspaper wrote that, quote, the atmosphere among staff has been described by someone with knowledge of the situation as, quote, a bit of a revolt. Vancouver Opera's annual budget this year is projected to be about 9.6 million Canadian dollars. Cuts in pay are expected to save the opera about 45,000. Soprano Anya Hartero sang Elizabeth and Tannhäuser at the Vienna State Opera yesterday, while the New York Times article asked, quote, Why then have her appearances outside of a small circle of theaters in and near Germany been so limited over the past decade? More on that story in our hot takes. Los Angeles Opera announced last Thursday that Grant Gershon, who has held the title resident conductor for the last five years, has renewed his contract through the 2019-20 season. Gershon made his conducting debut with the company in 2009 with Verdi's La Traviata. He previously served as chorus master and then chorus director. Virginia Opera has set a goal of securing the youngest opera audience in the country by 2025. Opera has such a history. Lana Sadowski, acting director of marketing, said, We want to bring it to young people and to folks who haven't tried opera before so they can see how great opera really is. One step in that direction was to freshen the company's look for its website, brochures, and other marketing materials for the 2017-2018 season, which has the theme, Love that is not madness is not love. Overseas, Grange Park Opera was, excuse me, Grange Park Opera was founded on a banker's estate in Hampshire. When the landlords fell out last year with Wasfikani, the founder, she took the company, lock, stock, and seats, to a green field in the county of Surrey, given to her on a 99-year lease by a broadcaster, Bamber Gascoigne. More details to follow in a minute. The Irish Arts Council has announced the merger of Opera Theatre Company and Wide Open Opera to become, quote, its preferred provider of main-scale opera in Dublin starting in 2018. Both companies have Fergus Scheel as artistic director. Thomas Zierhofer-Keen's first season as the head of the Wiener Festwochen has not been a success. Both of the artistic directors, Nadine Jensen and Johannes Meile, are to be replaced. And on this day in 1895, Karl Orff was born. Cue spooky choral music. That's your two-minute drill. Live from Chicago, it's Opera Box Score with George Tobias. And Oliver. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Us being me, George Cedarquist, doing the solo show, recording a little bit early here, but still releasing it at our usual time. Wow. Pretty good two-minute drill. I would say for early July, not a ton happening in opera land, but a lot of stories to discuss Let's start with the Vancouver Opera business, a 2% pay cut, huh? Interesting company. I have met some of the folks on the staff there. I have been there 2013 when I was in Vancouver. Pretty big budget as well, $10 million. But the cut's only expected to save forty-five grand. And you're asking every staff member, contractors, even apparently some artists, to take a 2% pay cut to save $45,000. For me, that math does not make sense. That math doesn't add up. And uh, it's just hearsay in terms of how people are 
unhappy inside the organization. Nothing confirmed, of course, nothing public. But, I mean, would you really want to aggravate your family, everyone in your company, for $45,000? Seems like there's other ways to cut that money. I don't know if I agree with that decision. It feels like there's some better ways to, to handle it. Anya Hartaros, this, now this is an interesting article in the New York Times. We'll put it on the website, operaboxscore.com. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR that you're listening to. Now, Oliver, he is our resident official on singers. He knows all the singers. I know all the directors. Toby doesn't know anything. He knows the singers. I wish he could chime in on this. Maybe he can post via Facebook and get his own opinion out there. But this is what's interesting about why she has had some problems. She's developed a reputation for cancellations, hasn't done a show at the Met since 2008, but prior to that had a number of several seasons. And even in this article, Peter Geld, the Met general manager, says, quote, I've told her this. I would turn the schedule inside out to make it possible even on short notice. This is to to schedule her at the Met because I think it would be a great artistic event to have her back on the Met stage. Now, what you get from this article is that her, her ability to not be singing at, at the biggest houses, if you can call that an ability, has been largely from her personal life. So her husband, who's an artistic mentor of hers, has been sick for some time. So therefore, she's unwilling to to leave where they live, which is in Cologne in Germany. Uh, here's another quote. T- Tony Papano, music director at Covent Garden. She's a very responsible person and she has a responsibility. End of story. It doesn't make me feel wonderful, but it is what it is. It feels to me like she is being punished for putting her heart in the right place. Look, if someone is sick in your family, especially if it's your husband, you're going to take care of them. Look, life happens. Nothing in this world is more important than your family. Nothing. I don't care who you are, what you're doing, what show you're doing, how big your name is. If, if you're in the performing arts, I can't speak to another field because I don't know any other fields, but I'm just going to stick with the performing arts. Although I could talk about sports, too. But a lot of sports stars, if they have a family problem, family emergency, they won't play in the ball game. You know, they won't take a snap. They'll just go home. And so it feels to me like she is being punished for trying to stay close to her husband. I don't know how sick he is. I, I don't know about that relationship, I'm not, so I can't really comment on that, other than to say that... Uh, I think she needs to be cut some slack. Now, there's a second part to this decisions that she made, again, from the New York Times article, says, quote, she rejected major theaters that wanted to build her up in uncongenial minor roles, preferring to sing the character she loved in smaller houses. Now, this is a little bit more debatable. You know, are you going to be a little fish in a big pond? Or are you going to do something that you truly love on a smaller scale? Again, I'm just going to speak from personal experience. Look, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a huge international career. I don't have a huge national career. What I've decided to do, and it ties into family, 
is to try and do work that I love, that I have artistic control of, even if it's on a smaller scale, even if it's in Chicago, even if it's not in a big house in Chicago. Because to me, what's important is to be doing it and be doing it the way I want it. I would argue that Anya would agree with that fact, that she wants to do work that's important to her, and that means big parts, big roles, even if the companies are not so big. I didn't get a chance to see the Tannhäuser from the Vienna State Opera. By the way, side note, Staatsoper Punkte TV, S-T-A-A-T-S-O-P-E-R dot TV, is the online streaming, um, excuse me, from the Bavarian State Opera. I said Vienna. They're very close, those two cities. So I love that streaming service, by the way. Watch this space. I'm interested to see what happens next in her career. Grant Gershon renewing the contract at LA Opera seems like a smart decision to me. Let's talk about Virginia Opera. Two parts here. First of all, they've set a goal of securing the youngest opera audience in the country by 2025. That's like France saying, we're going to get rid of all diesel and gasoline-fueled cars by 2040. Did you see that? By the way, they came in the light of the the G20 summit, sorry, the G19 plus one summit the other day. I think it's an admirable goal. I don't know how they're going to accomplish it. Londa Sadowski says, quote, we wanted to bring opera to young people and to folks who haven't tried opera before so they can see how great opera really is. It has such a history. Well, yeah, it has such a history. It's It's a 400 year old art form. Here's what I don't get is that, okay, so the company gets a new website, new brochures, marketing materials. Maybe they got a new logo. I'm not sure. What I don't get is this, is that this season coming up has a theme. That theme, quote, is love that is not madness is not love. All right, two parts. First of all, that's not true. There's a whole lot of love out there that isn't mad, that is very sane. Second of all, I do not get... Marketing teams at opera houses that come up with a theme for the season. It's not just opera. Also, in theater. But like the tagline thing, okay, it works on the movies, works on a movie poster. But when you're putting together a package, three shows, four shows, to try and force a connection between all those pieces, because I'm not sure that an audience, if they really care, Think about it. If you're an audience member, do you want to go see a show that is about the same thing four times over? That is, you want to see four different shows that are all about the same thing? That's not attractive to me. In addition, every opera has love in it. So I I, I don't see the specificity here, and I've never understood the idea of putting a theme out there for your season. I think it limits you artistically, and I think it reduces what is a very complex art form. Oh my goodness, overseas. Interesting stuff here. Grange Park Opera. Now this is a little old, this story, moving from one location to another. The the English opera summer season is so different from here in the U.S. So what they call, you know, country house opera, right? So people in all the the different counties, mostly in the south of England, let's be honest, big country homes that have big fields, sheep are grazing in there for whatever, nine months of the year, and they kick them out. 
and to the next door paddock, and they set up an opera house. Grange Park, Garsington, Glyndebourne is the big one, of course. The Benjamin Britten uh, Festival in Albra, slightly different. But it's a very different thing. I mean, it's something that not everybody gets to go to. I feel like opera festivals in the summer in America, Santa Fe, St. Louis, Glimmerglass, Wolf Trap, Chautauqua, everybody can get in. It, it, you just, you just got to go, you know? And it's not, it's not an elitist thing the way that, look, in England, in my opinion, it really separates the wheat from the chaff, as my mother would say. I'm not criticizing this, this decision to, move, to keep this festival going, you know, if, if you can't do it one place then, and you like what you're doing, then of course you go someplace else. But I'm saying in general, the English summer opera season or concept in England needs a little more, needs a little more work, needs to find a way to not be so elitist. Oh, on this day, Carl Orff was born. Here's the thing about Carl Orff. Yes, Carmina Barana, I joked about it earlier. Great piece, of course. Karl Orff is so much more than Carmina Barana. I'm trying to remember now how many operas Karl Orff wrote. Let me see here. Uh, Die Kluge, which is the clever one. Der Mond, which is the moon. He also wrote a crazy piece... Oh, what was it called? Um, Antigone, that's one as well. What was that crazy piece, though? Something, it had a Latin title. Great opera composer. No one ever does them in this country. That's not quite true. Chicago Opera Theater did Die Kluge a couple years ago. Uh, when I was in Darmstadt as an assistant director, we did Dermond. I would love to see that piece done here. Interesting guy, right? Some connections to the Nazi party, which have definitely hurt his uh, reputation. Ah, that's it. De Temporum Fine Commedia, the play on the end of times. That was his last piece at the Salzburg Festival um, in 1973. Hmm, how about that? And of course, what else is interesting about Orff, again, overlooked in the light of Carmina Barana, of course, all his work with children and music. When I was a kid growing up in Ann Arbor, we, we, I learned music through the, the pedagogy of Karl Orff. Maybe that's why I'm so biased. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. Appreciate everybody checking in. Good call, bad call. Hey, look, you know... George Cedarquist here. I don't watch a lot of movies. The only time I ever watch movies is really like during the summer if I'm away doing a summer festival, not with a family. I just don't have time to watch movies. Plus, most movies suck. Anyway, if I'm going to go see a movie, it's not going to be some finely rock character drama. Why? Because that's my day job is to do finely rock character drama and stories told through music. If I'm going to go see a movie, I want to see machines blowing each other up and people hitting each other with swords. Plus, the art direction on those movies is really fantastic. Here's a list. Literally, I have seen no more movies than this in the past, like, five years. Pacific Rim, which was about robots blowing each other up. Day After Tomorrow. 
2012. Remember that movie? That was an end of the world movie. Uh, I saw In the Heart of the Sea. That was the Moby Dick adaptation. This summer, I just saw two movies back to back, two weekends in a row. First of all, I saw Wonder Woman, and then I saw Transformers The Last Night. I'll let you guys tell me which one you thought I loved and which one you thought I hated. You can tweet us at Opera Box Score. That's the big pop quiz question for tonight. Wonder Woman versus Transformers. Which movie would George have loved? And which one would he have hated? And when will he ever see two movies back to back again? That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Have you liked our Facebook page yet? You can do that. Put it on your to-do list and then share, comment on our posts on Twitter at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Help promote our show by leaving a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera wherever you are this summer. Just please wear some decent sunblock. We're back on Monday, July 17th for more opera headlines, interviews, and insider opinions. Argo Radio is up next. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.